Good morning. My name is David, and I'm a postulant here at Incarnation Anglican Church, which means I am a priest in training, although first I'll pass through the stage of deacon. Many of you know me, um, but what probably none of you in this room know is that I am uniquely qualified to talk about Christ's coming, for that is our last installment of the service series on God's power, which is when Christ returns. What qualifies me is that when I was in middle school, I survived the apocalypse. <laughs> it's true. Do any of you remember the threat of the Y2K bug? There was this thought that when the millennium switched over from December 31st, 1999, at midnight into January 1st, 2000, the world's computer systems would crash and modern society would collapse because computers are magic. Sorry. My family was deeply concerned with end times prophecies and they were convinced Y2K was going to be the big one. Some close relatives of mine even installed a generator they dug a well, and they even stockpiled a couple years' worth of food in their basement. I fondly remember it as the Y2K bunker. <laughs> anyway, we were ready. As it turns out, however, society did not collapse when the ball dropped at Times Square that stroke of midnight. And the rest is, as they say, history. Looking back, I have mixed feelings about the experience. On the one hand, I admire the earnestness the seriousness which, with which we took the expectation that God was about to act dramatically in history. But on the other hand, what exactly were we trying to accomplish? What was the point of going survivalist in 1998 and 1999? It almost feels like we weren't so much getting ready for the new age God was preparing and had begun with Jesus at his resurrection, so much as we were clinging to the old age with everything we had. We weren't even trying to get through the end times period by rejoicing in our blessed assurance that we belong to Jesus Christ, or at least by aligning ourselves with the justice that God was about to show the world by giving justice to the poor, the weak, and the oppressed. In a word, where was the good news in all of this? Anyway, we have some really exciting readings today, don't we? Zephaniah, Matthew, Paul, and 1 Thessalonians, they all lay it on really thick with the talk of a coming judgment and the urgent necessity of getting ready for it. Psalm 90 itself cries out for deliverance from a judgment that seems to have already befallen God's people and appears to be ongoing. With these scriptures, we arrive at our final installment in this series on God's power and what it means for the human exercise of power. These texts, in different ways, all point to the final act in the cosmic drama between God and his creation. And this we understand to be Christ's second coming. While we could say that Christ's death and resurrection is the central display of God's power, when he comes back it will be the final display of his power. And if you are paying any attention at all to these readings, it sounds downright frightening. Maybe we really do need to build a bunker. Okay, not really. But when I think about Christ's return, my mind does immediately go to Michelangelo's fresco on the Last Judgment on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. There it is. Now, I'm not so sure that this is the healthiest place for my mind to land right after um, you know, thinking about Christ's return and judgment rather than, say, the New Jerusalem and the Tree of Life, but there it is. 
We confess our faith every week with this in the Nicene Creed, affirming that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. But what do we do with that conviction? Protestant theology seems to be constantly on the lookout for a way out of the last judgment. If we trust in Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior, then, by that faith, we are made right with God. We are declared righteous in his sight because Jesus' obedience to God's will becomes ours, and he takes our sins and consequences upon himself. To which we must say, yes and amen. At this point, however, the judgment of the living and the dead for Christians risks becoming a mere formality. Christians just don't really need to think about it because a positive outcome is assured. The good news is we more or less get to skip out on the judgment and go straight to paradise. So this morning, these scriptures prompt us to ask, how is this display of God's power good news? In what sense is Christ coming to judge the living and the dead gospel? The answer is that it brings about the final reversal of everything that is upside down in this present world. That is, Christ will bring justice upon the earth. Jesus had many different ways of expressing this idea of reversal. One of the most stark ways he put it was that the first would become last and the last will become first. I found this aspect of Jesus' teaching very difficult for modern readers to swallow because there are very concrete winners and losers in this scenario. The poor are assured they will inherit the earth, but the rich will receive nothing. The hungry will be satisfied, but those who are full now will walk away empty. Those despised and of no reputation would be rewarded, but the well-regarded would share the fate of the well-regarded prophets who turned out to be false ones. The bottom line for Jesus is that you can have wealth and abundance and good reputation right now or you can have it in the kingdom of God, but not both. You can have power now, or you can have power in the kingdom, but not both. Pick one. There's a reason Jesus describes his vocation as proclaiming good news to the poor. Stop. On the other hand, Jesus didn't completely shut the door of the kingdom to the powerful, but he took a much different approach from the way he treated the powerless. These exchanges were still compassionate, most notably among which were when Jesus dined with tax collectors. Now, there's never been an age, or I, I doubt there is, when tax collector as an occupation was particularly admired. But <laughs> in the Judea of Jesus' day, they were not bland bureaucrats just doing their jobs. They were considered the lowest of the low. The Romans enlisted Jews, typically low society Jews, to collect tribute from their countrymen. And as long as Rome got its cut, the taxmen could pad their margins by however much they liked to enrich themselves. And so, tax collectors were considered traitors who enriched themselves off the backs of their fellow Jews. To identify with such people by sharing a meal with them in first century Judea was as unthinkable then as would be throwing dinner parties today with a guest list drawn from the sex offender registry. I hasten to note, however, a major difference between how Jesus shows compassion to tax collectors and how he shows compassion on, say, the sick. When dealing with exploiters, Jesus always expects them to repent and make restitution for those they had exploited. 
you may recall the story of Zacchaeus, which interestingly the Gospel of Luke associates with its parallel version of the parable of the talents that we just read in Matthew 25. After simply communing with Jesus, Zacchaeus declares, Look, half my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone, I will pay back four times as much. And to that specific statement, Jesus responds, Today salvation has come to this house. Such is the great reversal when God's kingdom comes in its fullness. Even the worst sinners are welcomed to commune with Jesus by virtue of repentance and forgiveness. One might say that those with power are welcomed into Jesus' fellowship by grace, in spite of their power. Those without power are welcomed through mercy, that is, not in spite of, but because of their powerlessness. The first will be last. The last will be first. When Jesus comes back, that reversal will be complete. Right now, we rest assured that the days of injustice on earth are numbered. God has heard the cry of the poor, the blood of Abel pleading from the earth, prayers of the persecuted coming from under the altar before God's throne. In a little while, justice will be on earth as it is in heaven. In that sense, Christ's return as judge is not good news in the way that, say, being an Oprah's audience is good news. You get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car. Everybody walks out with the same really cool stuff. Now, side note, in fairness to Oprah, she's done some truly amazing things to people in need in those events, and she herself has suffered a lot of injustice. So I speak not of the real Oprah so much as the internet Oprah. But that is what salvation can sound like if we focus entirely on the end result. You get to be in the new heaven and the new earth. You get to be in the new heaven and the new earth. And you get to be in the new heaven and the new earth. You get the idea. On the contrary, God gives to the weak, poor, and despised what they were denied in the present age. And the rich and powerful are given the chance to deny themselves in this age so that they may enter the age to come. If they don't, read Zephaniah. It is in that light I would like to briefly touch on the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. I think this might be one of the most frequently misread teachings of Jesus in today's America. Often it is taught, although Jesus were concerned to give us lessons in personal finance, which yields a moral takeaway diametrically opposite to Jesus' kingdom teaching about a reversal in this world as we know it. Our Lord is made into a baron of the free market who underwrites our national myth of meritocracy, where if you use money to make money or use power to gain power, well done, good and faithful capitalist, good and faithful politician. God rewards the rich and punishes the poor. I am here to tell you, let it never be. That is why I mention how Luke precedes his version of the parable with the wealthy Zacchaeus giving away his perfectly legally gotten gains and giving fourfold reparations to those whom he exploited. You will also notice that if you keep reading in Matthew 25, that right after this discourse comes to a climax, Jesus gives a description of the final judgment, where in the final analysis, what separates the wicked and the righteous are acts of mercy to the hungry, the thirsty, the homeless, or not to the least of these. So, I would like to put to bed the abuse of this parable that makes it a manual for building treasures on earth.
So, what is really going on here? If you look at the other place in the Gospels that Jesus invokes this principle that to the one who has much, much will be given, it references to whom is given the knowledge of the kingdom of God in the parables, notably in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. Jesus says, to you, that is, his students or disciples, has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Therefore, what Jesus actually does in this story of the talents is explain how people are to use their knowledge of the kingdom of God in this in-between age, the era in between the age of Christ's first coming and his second. The talenta, which had nothing to do with a person's innate giftings that we use the word talent for in English, were a measure of wealth. A single talenton was worth about 15 years' wages for a common laborer. Just one is an exorbitant amount of money. Five talenta are nearly unthinkable. So great is the good news of what God has done for us by sending his son to live, die, and rise again, that we get to live with him forever, that it is described with this unimaginable wealth. The business activity referenced in the parable has to do with what we make of our knowledge of God's kingdom in the present. It is our one possession of true eternal worth. In the DTO, or the Divine Trade Organization, as it were, God has established that one must go out and do business with this currency and make it, that is, knowledge of the kingdom, multiply. To keep it sewn into your mattress or secured in a bunker is to waste it and to distance oneself from the master. So it was with the fearful servant who did nothing with his talenton. That servant showed that he either didn't really know what the master was like, or, as the text suggests, that his knowledge was more like a bare awareness that was not combined with conviction. The great reversal here, therefore, is that knowledge of the kingdom grows the more it is given away, and it shrivels the more it is kept to oneself. In sum, the good news or gospel about Christ's return to judge the living and the dead goes something more like this. To Christ's followers who are sinned against in this life, who are oppressed by the powerful, Jesus says, you get justice, and you get justice, and you get justice. To his followers who are poor, who are hungry, homeless, who are refugees, Jesus says, you get mercy, you get mercy, and you get mercy. And to the powerful, the wealthy, the comfortable in this world, who repent of their abuses and follow Jesus by enacting justice and mercy right now, Jesus says, you get grace, you get grace, you get grace. And these promises of good things to come only get better and grow in their benefits, not by hunkering down and waiting it out to the end, but by our going out and sharing them. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that your gospel, your good news is comprehensive. And it does not save us from this world, but it saves us in this world and for this world. For you are coming to redeem all things. We pray that you will make this knowledge of your promises grow within us so that we go out and make it multiply and that the more we give it out to others, the more it grows and redounds to ourselves. We pray in this time that feels like a time of judgment with an apocalyptic election season and an even more apocalyptic-seeming pandemic. We pray, God, that the people would hold fast to your promises, that the good news is that you will, in the end, no matter what happens, somehow, in some way, bring justice and peace to this earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.